chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a smaller portion, but it's, uh, it's going to set us up for the next couple of chapters. So John chapter 2. Looking in, uh, we're going to look at verses 23 through 25. John 2, 23 through 25. You'll remember last week, Jesus had gone to the temple for the Passover. Um, he had his um, uh, exchange there with the, uh, the whole system as he drove the uh, the animals and the money changers out and he flipped the tables and then the the Jews came and said what sign do you show us essentially saying what's uh what's what authority do you have to do these things Jesus says destroy this temple and in 3 days I'll raise it up they had no idea what he was talking about but it says after that he was um uh, risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that particular scene or remembered that particular moment. And when they did, they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, this is verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. And so we come to this kind of a strange portion of Scripture here. At least it appears to be strange on the surface. Once we get into it, you'll you'll see that this is something that fits very naturally with what we uh, know to be true and in its bigger context is something that um, really isn't strange at all. It's something that we, you've probably believed for years. Um, but the way that it's said here, the way that it's set up here, uh, might just catch you off guard a little bit. So it says that while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, okay, so Passover, it's a, it's a week-long thing uh, as far as the celebration of the week. While He was there, it says that many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. So apparently there were plenty of other miracles that Jesus did during the Passover week that are not recorded for us here. And as Jesus did those miracles or did those signs, People saw that, and it says here that they believed in His name. But then this is Jesus' response to that. In verse 24 it said, But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men. So Jesus did not commit Himself unto them. Who are the them? Well, it's the ones who had believed on His name when they saw His miracles. Now there's a play on words here because the word that is translated commit, Jesus did not commit Himself, is the same Greek word that's used in the previous verse and it's translated believed. Okay, They believed in His name. Same Greek word is taken down and used. Jesus did not, it could be translated, believe or entrust Belief and trust are synonyms. 
So you'll find that that Greek word is translated in those different ways, you know, several times in the New Testament. Did not believe or commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He needed not that any should testify of man because he knew what was in man. Now this is in a nutshell what's being said. Many believed in Jesus after seeing his miracles, but he did not believe in them. Or, more specifically, he did not believe in what was in them. He knew what was in them, and he didn't trust it. He didn't believe it. Now, we could sharpen it up just a little bit more and say, many believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in their belief. Many believed in Jesus after they saw the miracles, but he did not believe in their belief, or he did not trust their belief. It's saying the same thing in two different ways. And so I want to look this morning um, at this section, because this section, like I said earlier, is going to move us into chapter 3, Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. You have this man who was a Pharisee. You have this man who was a rabbi. He was a leader. He comes to Jesus saying, we know, Lord, we know that you have come from God because no one can do the things that you do. And essentially, Jesus' response to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you don't know anything. you got a head full of knowledge but you don't know anything. It's the same thing that's going to happen whenever he meets the woman at the well in chapter 4. It just happens in a very different way. And so there's a couple of categories, four categories that are going to be established here in John chapter 2, 23 through 25. And just as far as focusing here on the play on words, and it really is a word play. I think John is intentionally laying out here. John's going to look at, he's going to address uh, the belief that Jesus does not believe. Okay. The belief, or maybe you could say the kind of belief that Jesus does not believe. First thing, that we want to look at as we look at this passage and try to understand what's being said. And again, you might hear me say that, the belief that Jesus doesn't believe, and say, wait a minute, this is something new. No, it's not new, and you're going to figure out it's not new. Uh, it's something that you've, you've thought about, something that you've recognized for years. You just probably haven't thought about it in these categories. So number one, Christ knows the heart of man. Right? We see that. In verse um, 25, really verse into verse 24, he knew all men. He did not need any that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus Christ could look directly into each individual and know what was there. We'll look at this a little more later, but you remember in John chapter 6, whenever the crowds came after him and Jesus says to them, the only reason you're here is because you want more bread. Okay, the passage says they were seeking Jesus, and Jesus says, well, you're not really seeking me, you're seeking bread. 
And then he begins to tell them who he really is. And then it says they turned back and they did not follow him anymore. They were interested in the bread, not in the Savior. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we'll go there just to establish this, this point. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, you'll be familiar with this verse. It's when Samuel goes and he's at the house of Jesse. He's trying to figure out which son it is that is going to be anointed king. And in verse 7 it says, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, the point here that the Lord's making to Samuel, and the point that's going to be reinforced throughout Scripture, we'll look at a few more passages, is the fact that God looks not just at our actions. You can't deceive God. You can't flatter God. You can't um, have an outward appearance that's inconsistent with your inward disposition and fool God into thinking you're something that you're not because God looks directly on the heart. Now, the point of this and the point of the passage as far as John 2, 23 through 25 goes is not that we're going to work to try to make one another uh, heart inspectors so that we can look into the crevices of people's hearts and and uh, uh, know for certain the credibility or the, uh, uh, the uh, incredibility of somebody's profession of faith. The point of this passage is that Jesus Christ can do something that you and I cannot. And that is, He can look directly onto the heart. He can discern a false profession from a credible profession. Jesus Christ knows what's happening in your heart and He doesn't need anyone to tell Him about that. He looks directly into it. Scripture would talk about this in the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs 21. Verse 2, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Every way of man is right in his own eyes. That's just a, that's just sort of a, a self-justifying statement. I mean, it's just something that doesn't need a lot of explanation. Typically, when you do something, you have a justification for why you do it. You think you're in the right or you would not have done it to begin with. Even if you know that you're doing the wrong thing, before we do the wrong thing, we can typically justify why it's okay this one time that we do the wrong thing. Here in Proverbs, he says, every way of a man is right, or at least seems right in his own eyes. And you may be able to justify yourself to yourself. You may, be, you may even be able to justify yourself to other people. But the point of this passage is that God looks directly on to the heart. You might fool yourself, you might fool others, but you will not fool Him. He weighs the reins of the heart. 
and Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. Really, verse 9, the passage you're very familiar with. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What What does this mean? Well, it means that our hearts can deceive us so easily, can't they? We can think we're doing the right thing for the right reason and be completely self-deceived. But the next passage follows and it says, you may deceive yourself or you may be deceived by your heart. But, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. Again, This passage is highlighting the fact that God can know things. God can go places that we cannot go and know things that we cannot know. Hebrews 4, this will be the last. We could go to many, many more, but this will be the last passage we'll go to for this. Christ knows the heart of man. Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now the point of verse 12 is that the Word of God can do a work in us and can go places in us that no one else can go, nothing else can go, aside from obviously God Himself. And the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, as we come into contact with the Word, the Holy Spirit can use that to reveal to us motives that we maybe weren't seeing before, can bring convictions that maybe things were hidden to us before. But, but then he goes on, It's not because the Word in and of itself has any power. It's because the one who wrote the Word and the one who illuminates our minds to the Word and applies the Word. Verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, that is God's sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Now think about what an incredible statement that is. Nothing is hidden. Nothing. Now, at some level we say, well, of course not. He's God. He's omniscient. But think about the details of that in reality. Think about how frustrated you are when you lose your car keys. Or you lose something that you need and it's important that you have it. Think about it how, think about how frustrating it is when you figure out you've been duped. You figure out someone took advantage of you. You figure out somebody pulled the wool over your eyes. And in your foolishness, you believed it. Maybe in your gullibility, you believed it. What Hebrews 4 is telling us is that it's impossible that this kind of thing could ever happen to God. 
It can't. Because all things are open before Him. All things are exposed. He sees both the outward and He sees the inward. And so Christ knows the heart of man. Secondly, we're thinking back in John chapter 2, these people saw His miracles says they believed in His name, but He did not entrust Himself to them or He did not believe their belief. Number one, Christ knows what's in the heart of man. Number two, Christ knows His sheep. Christ knows His sheep. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. It says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. The Lord knoweth them that are His. This is this foundation of God that stands sure that God knows His people. Okay, Christ would say, I know my sheep and they know me. And so when we're thinking about the kind of belief that Jesus doesn't believe, We need to keep this part in mind. It's not that people are coming to Christ with sincere faith. It's not that people are coming to Christ in a uh, some sort of sincere expression of faith. And Jesus is saying that's not good enough. The reality is that there are plenty of people who will say, Lord, did we not? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. False professors. People who claim something that wasn't real. Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, I knew you before you were ever put together in the womb. From all eternity, I knew you. Now this, this know here is not just I knew who you were going to be. I knew where you were going to be. This know is a is an intimate knowledge of someone. I know you. I know you. And what I know about you endears me to you. Or this sort of a knowledge makes me love you. It's an intimate relationship. Now, um, he says to Jeremiah, I loved you or I knew you before you were ever put together. We just mentioned this in John chapter 10, but you can turn there. John chapter 10. Verse 14. Jesus says, John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. Okay, so whenever we talk about the kind of belief that Jesus doesn't believe, again, we're not messing with, we're not, uh, Scripture's not upending anything that has to do with God's eternal decrees. 
uh, with God's electing of a people, with God's adopting of a people. We're we're not messing with any of that. This passage isn't messing with any of that. The reality is Christ knows the heart of man and Christ also knows his sheep. And And his sheep know him. And verse 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so I, the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's this, again, this knowledge. He knows his sheep, his flock. Now, there's there's a contrast that's going on and we see that in a couple of other passages. Look in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 24. This is where we would see that knowledge applied in a particular way. Matthew 13, verse 24. says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence, uh, from whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say unto the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, gather the wheat into my barn. This parable of the wheat and the tares. This man who went, you've heard the parable just now, he went and sowed good seed, and then someone went and sowed bad seed in the midst of that. The workers figure out what happened, and they come to the uh, householder, and they say, you see what happened here? Do you want us to go and to take out the bad seed, take out the tares and leave the wheat? And the householder essentially says, you may not be able to discern one from the other right now, so you need to wait until the harvest. I don't want you trying to take up these tares because in the process you may end up plucking up some wheat. Leave that alone right now. And in the harvest, we will separate the two. There are There is wheat sown among the tares. It seems as if, it looks as if, In some ways, you can't make a distinction between the two, but Jesus says, I'll make the distinction when harvest time comes. It may have an appearance of looking real as far as the wheat goes, but it's not. It's not, and it will not prove to be. Again, we said in Matthew, and this is uh, in Matthew chapter 9, and this is going to be more along the lines of what we're looking at here. Not Matthew 9, I'm sorry. Matthew 7. 
Matthew 7. He says, Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit, this is Matthew 7, 19, Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And so we have here this passage where Jesus, again, clearly lays out there will be false professors. The fact that someone claims to believe in my name, the fact that someone calls me Lord, Lord, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean anything. And it's not because someone can come to Jesus in sincerity claiming or, or uh, uh, crying out to Him, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, well, you just hadn't mustered up the right kind of faith and so you've got to go. That's not it. You'll notice that whenever these people come to Jesus, they're far more impressed with what they've done for Him than they are with who He actually is. Lord, Lord, I'm going to commend myself to you based on what I've done for you. Have we not this and have we not that? And it's all surrounding these signs and these works that they've done on His behalf. And Jesus says, notice what He doesn't say. He doesn't say, you never did any of that stuff. He doesn't say that. He just simply says, you may have done that stuff, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Workers of iniquity. So Jesus knows the heart of man. Jesus knows His sheep. And then I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit into John chapter 3, but I think it's a necessity for us to make sense out of this passage. To recognize this Reality that in Scripture, true faith only comes one way. True faith only comes one way. And that's through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, It's that and only that. John chapter 3, he comes to Nicodemus. Again, this man who was a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews. He knew a lot. He had committed himself to a lot. No doubt a very disciplined man. Um, a man who had rearranged his life around his religion in ways that we probably couldn't even comprehend. And he comes to Jesus and he says, based on what you've done, we know you must be from God. And Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. And this phrase completely confuses Nicodemus. And Jesus says, how is it that you're a teacher of the law? How is it that you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about? 
Well, you know, the answer to that is, is that he didn't have true faith. That's the answer to that. Now, later on, we have reason to believe that he did and that Christ brought him to faith. But here, he doesn't know what's happening. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you can know the law. You can keep the ceremonies. You can rearrange your life around your religion. But if you do not come to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's something that must happen to you that's completely outside of your control. There's a miraculous work that must be done in you before you can come to me for who I really am. Nicodemus is coming to to Christ as the miracle worker, as the sign worker. And he's saying, based on these signs, we are impressed and we realize there's something different about you. Nobody could do these things except they were from God. What Nicodemus does not come to Christ saying is, I'm confessing my sin because you are the Savior for sinners. You are the Messiah. And you'll see that's a, that's a pattern we see throughout the book of John as far as the distinctions go. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You, you, you know this passage. It's one of the staple passages for the need for regeneration. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, So the natural man, that's just man in his natural disposition, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, because they're spiritually discerned. When we talk about having eyes to see and we talk about having ears to hear and we talk about the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we're not saying that you can't read through the Gospel of John and understand some of the basic facts of the book. You can understand the information. You can understand the storyline. But you'll never come to the conclusion that what you need is Jesus Christ as your Savior because you are undone in your sin. You'll never come to the conclusion that I need to live a life that is characterized by me denying myself and following Him until the Spirit of God gives you a new heart. Because until that happens, this is a good story for everybody but you. You just can't, you just can't figure out what's, what's, what's the big deal. You can't figure out why it is you would want to do this and why it is that you would rearrange your life for this You can't make sense out of it. You can't understand it until the Spirit gives you spiritual understanding. Matthew 19. And we're going to get to the, uh, we're going to park it in the last section for a bit longer than what these first three are. Matthew 19. This is after the rich young ruler leaves. Verse 23, Then said Jesus to his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and he said unto them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus makes this statement about the rich man and just about um, those in general who trust in their riches, those who are um, trusting in themselves and their own resources. He says it's impossible. It's they would it's that they would hardly ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. His disciples think, well, if anybody would, it would be this guy. Who can if he can't? And Jesus says, with man, it's just completely impossible. It can't happen. What does that mean? It means you all by yourself will never come to the conclusion that you need a Savior. It's that you all by yourself will never accept the sayings of Jesus Christ. You will never come to the conclusion that He is who He says He is and that He, what He has revealed about God is relevant and right. You would never come to that conclusion on your own. It's impossible, Jesus says. But with God... All things are possible. He's saying the only way anyone is ever saved, the only way that anyone is ever brought into the kingdom is through the power of God. He would say it a little clearer in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he would say, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. This drawing power of the Father. Drawing people to His Son. Now, some might say, you look at John chapter 2, verse 23, and it says that they saw the signs and they believed in His name, and so it looks like, you know, the Father drew those people to Him. So how do we reconcile that? It said they believed in His name. So hopefully in our last section, we can make the distinction pretty clear on what it is that's being said in this passage. So we said, number one, Christ looks at the heart. Number two, Christ knows who are his, knows those who are His. Number three, genuine faith only comes one way. It's a gift given by God. And then number four, Christ rejects counterfeit faith. Christ rejects counterfeit faith. Now, I'm using the term counterfeit faith the same way that James would refer to dead faith. You know, faith without works is dead. It's the same thing that James is talking about there. Now, I want to make some distinctions and kind of clarify what we're saying. This could very easily be misunderstood. When I'm talking about counterfeit faith or dead faith, I'm not talking about the intensity of somebody's faith or the maturity of somebody's faith. Jesus would say to his disciples five or six times, O ye of little faith. Okay? It was small. It was immature, but it was genuine. It was real. So we're not talking about some sort of a deficiency in the intensity or the maturity of your faith when we're talking about counterfeit faith. 
Secondly, we're also not talking about anything that you can just muster up from within yourself. The whole idea that many times uh, overzealous, I think unbiblical understandings where people will say, I know you say you believe, but do you really, 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 really believe? That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. When I'm talking about a counterfeit faith, and I think what John's referring to here when he talks about Jesus didn't believe their belief, the kind of belief that Jesus doesn't believe, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the substance of a person's faith. The substance of a person's faith. What is it that they're believing? Or more clearly, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked His disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Okay, when we talk about a credible profession of faith, we're saying there are some things about Jesus that you must believe. Better said, there are some things about Jesus that the Father must reveal to you in order for you to have a credible profession of faith. So we're not saying unless you say the right words, you can't be saved. We're saying when you're saved, God opens your eyes to who Jesus really is. And you know those things. There's a kind of shallow faith that's moved by miraculous experiences. And it stands in awe of the event, but it's no more interested in Jesus than it ever was before. You can illustrate this in several ways. And as soon as I start illustrating, you'll, you'll, you'll get it. It was popular, particularly in the 80s, and some of this is still going on now, for churches to have a, uh, some sort of a youth night where they bring in, they go by different names, but these power teams for Christ. You know what I'm talking about? These big muscled up guys that come in and they tear phone books in half and they bend rebar around their neck and they do these miraculous feats of strength. When I say miraculous, I just mean you and I can't do them. These guys are very, very strong men. And you bring these young kids in to watch them and they're just wowed and they're just, just dazzled by the fact that people could do this kind of thing. And then the muscle man walks up to the mic and gives an emotionally driven invitation to Christ. And you wouldn't believe how many people get saved at those things. And Jesus doesn't believe their belief. Because their belief has nothing to do with coming to the knowledge that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And it has everything to do with the fact that they are wowed with some muscle man who just ripped a phone book in half. And they don't want to feel stupid by rejecting what this guy's peddling. Okay. Or how about this? The Halloween special, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Man, angels are rejoicing all through the month of October, aren't they? 
You bring these young guys in. You show them this horrific scene of people burning in hell and demons doing who knows what. And then you ask a very simple question. Do you want that to be you? And who in their right mind is not going to say no? Right? And so again, the weekly bulletin comes out and we've seen hundreds saved this week from heaven's gates and hell's flames. Many came to believe, but Jesus does not believe their belief. Now, I'm not saying there can't be a true conversion at one of those places. I'm saying the majority of what's going on there is an emotional experience where the individual is no more interested in Christ after the emotional high is over with than he was before. How about this? Someone has a near-death experience. They have a car wreck. They have a uh, uh, some close call. And for a little while, they're very vocal and emotional for a time about how God miraculously spared their life. But again, they're no more interested in the claims of Jesus or interested in following Him than they ever were. Now, they'll tell you how good the man upstairs has been to them. But don't ask him to go to church. At least not more than twice. Don't ask him to repent. Don't ask him to, to um, submit themselves to Christ. and None of that. Well, do they believe in God? Yeah, the same way the demons believe in God. You know, James tells us that the demons have faith. They believe that, 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 that there's a God and they tremble. But Jesus doesn't believe their belief either. Again, what's the point? The point is that a counterfeit faith, one that looks like, it's, one, it's like a tear, the tears in the wheat. One that looks like, maybe this thing is real. But at the heart of it, there's no room for Jesus. The faith is just consumed with an emotional or a miraculous event. That's one of the reasons why, um, um, and you'll see this happen throughout the Gospels, that's one of the reasons why Jesus, you know, Jesus wouldn't make for a good um, megachurch pastor because He several times turns people away. You're not here for the right reasons. He's messing up his numbers. Why? Because he can see into the heart of man. And because he doesn't believe their belief. Now, there's another way that this can be expressed or illustrated. And this will be a way that we're probably more familiar with. I don't hear this as much anymore, but used to hear it a lot. You know, I've resisted for a long time but I'm finally ready to be baptized and come to the church. You know, I've been here for a long, long time and I've resisted and I'm finally ready to come to the church. Well, you know the church can't save you. The church can't do a thing in the world for you. And if all you're looking for is a spiritual clubhouse, Christ does not believe your belief. 
The church is the place to where you come to worship Jesus Christ. Not a place where you come to save your conscience because grandma and grandpa used to come here and this is just the way things are. It's also really, primarily, it's not the place where you come to, um, uh, primarily, I'm talking here, it's not the place you come because you say, I'm turning over a new leaf and it's time for me to get my life together and so what I'm going to do is start coming to church. Well, I'm sorry, but the church can't get your life together. Only Christ can transform your life. And He will use the church to do it, but the church is not the primary source of that. Now the point here is that all these methods and all these illustrations are just emotional or sentimental responses to Jesus that have nothing to do with who He really is. Nothing to do with what He's actually done. And nothing to do with the life that He's actually called us to live. Now compare 1 Corinthians 8, and you'll see this played out again in John chapter 6. So we're going to compare those here at the end of our time together. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, it's a very clear passage. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. If any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, the reason that I wanted to go to this passage is, again, to make it clear that this message is not intended to try to... Um, get you to dissect your love for the Lord or to dissect the uh, the genuineness or the uh, intensity or, and when I say genuineness, um, the fact that your faith and your love is zeroed in on or the object of your faith and your love is Jesus Christ. Okay. That's, that's the contrast to what we're going to look at in a minute. Okay. The question is just, do you love me? As Christ asked Peter. Do you love me? It's not. Do you really, 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 really love him? Are you sure? Do you love him or do you just love the love that you have for him? Those kinds of stupid questions that we can get way too introspective on. Okay, That's not what I'm talking about. The contrast here is, number one, 1 Corinthians 8, if any man love God, the same is known of him. It's a love for Jesus Christ. The one who comes to Christ because the muscle man bends a piece of rebar doesn't come because he loves God. He comes because he's impressed with what he's seen. The one who comes because hell's flames doesn't come because he loves God. He comes because he wants to avoid pain. Now here's the contrast. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And 
In John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 24. Jesus had just fed uh, the multitude. Uh, he got up the next day and he, he left. And in verse 24 it says, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither His disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. They were looking for Him. And when and uh, when they had found Him on the other side of the sea, they said unto Him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek Me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For Him hath God the Father sealed. And they said unto Him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. They said therefore unto Him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? So they come to Jesus after they had been fed. It was a miraculous event that those people could sit down and be fed out of the few loaves and fishes that Jesus had. They get up the next morning and realize He's gone. And they decide to go after him. And they get there and say, where'd you go? Why'd you leave? And he gets straight to the point. Why? Because he can see the heart. That's why. And he says, you're not here for me. You're here for the bread. You're here for what you can get. You're here because you want food. You're not here for a spiritual reason. And Jesus says, don't seek or don't work, don't labor for the meat that perishes, but for that meat which endures to everlasting life. In other words, you're not getting it. You're not understanding. And then they said, what do we do? What can we do? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe and then they say, show us a sign. Can you believe they would say that? Show us a sign. What happened the day before? They sat down with no food. And this man stood up and took a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and fed the multitude and had leftovers. And they said, show us a sign. The kind of belief that Jesus doesn't believe. See, it's, it's, not that, it's not that difficult to see. It's not that difficult to understand what's going on here. And some would say, well, you know what? But it says they're seeking Jesus. Yeah, they are. But they're seeking Him for the wrong reasons. Their motives aren't pure, and we would never know that except Jesus told us that. Now, let's keep going. In verse 36... They continue this whole dialogue and they ask for a sign and talk about the fact that God sent manna in the wilderness for their fathers and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And, and they go down through that. And, and in verse 36, Jesus says, But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. 
All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he had given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. So Jesus says, you know, you've, you've come to me and, and you've seen me, but you really haven't believed me. Jesus isn't thrown off by that. He realizes that all that the Father has sent him will come to him. Okay, so this is not somehow these guys are messing up God's plan. But Jesus says the belief that you're claiming is not real. It's not genuine. The substance of it is not what it needs to be. And I'm not saying that so that you can muster it up. I'm saying that because it's true. You want bread. You don't want someone to save you from your sin. Okay, and the, the dialogue continues to go on. Jump down to verse 60, and we're, we're skipping all this, number one, because we'll be in John chapter 6 later on, but number two, for time's sake. Verse 60 says, Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Now, this is after Jesus says that he is the bread and that they must eat him and uh, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood and, and all those kinds of things. And, and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can hear it? Now, any of us would have to recognize that strange language that Jesus uses there. But when they say this is a hard saying, who can hear it? They're not saying we don't understand what you're saying. They're saying, yeah, we're hearing what you're saying, but it's a hard thing for us to accept. It's a hard thing for us to accept. When Jesus, verse 61, knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What, and if you see the Son of Man ascended up where He was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray Him. That's just another way of saying they believed in a way that Jesus did not believe, right? Jesus did not believe in their belief. He knew. And he said, therefore, said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him by my father. Now, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. OK, so they're saying in verse 60, this is a hard saying. In other words, they're saying, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I just can't accept that. I can't believe that. I can't embrace that. And then their response it says they walked away and they did not come back. Okay? They walked away and did not come back. Now, sometimes we can come to some, I think, false conclusions about what's being said in Scripture because many times in these kinds of narratives, the uh, 
John, and, and the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired John, um, they're, they're not as precise as we would like for them to be. So, for instance, whenever we're looking in John chapter 2, 23 through 25, and it says, many after they saw the miracles believed in His name, but He did not entrust or He did not believe their belief, you might have the question, how can you tell the difference in Scripture? One belief was genuine, that's Christ. The other one was not, that's the people. How do you know? Is it a different Greek word? No. Is it a different Greek tense? No. It's the exact same word. Or maybe we get here and it says, from that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. And you might say, well, look, John said he was, they were his disciples and, and it was his disciples that went back. And so, you know, they were still his disciples. They just didn't follow him anymore. And if we really understood what the term disciples meant, then we would understand that makes no sense. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. It would be like saying they were still followers of Jesus, even though they weren't following Jesus. It doesn't work. And so from that time on, these people left. Why? Because they were never there for the right reason to begin with. They were never there because they saw Jesus for who He was. They were never there because Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, had revealed who God was in Christ. They were never there for that. And so again, it was a faith or a belief that Christ did not believe. You'll also notice in verse 67 uh, down to 71 that his disciples, the true disciples here, have the opposite response. He says, are you offended also? Are you going to go away? Peter says, Lord, where, where else can we go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. See, it was all about Jesus there. It wasn't about the bread. It wasn't about the perks as far as naturally speaking. It was about the fact that He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And where else can we go? And so, as we think about this passage, John chapter 2, we'll read it again, verse 23. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover... In the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. The question that this passage pushes is not, do you really, really, really believe in God? It's not the question this passage pushes. As a matter of fact, this passage doesn't even push the question, do you believe in God? You may be sitting here today saying, well, sure, I believe in God. I've always believed in God. Okay, that's fine. You're, you and the demons both, right? That's not the question. The question is, and we talked about this when we spent so much time in the prologue, the question is, out of John 1.18, do you believe what God has revealed about Himself through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? 
Because the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, part of what the Spirit does is He points us to Christ. He, he opens our eyes to who He is. And one of the miraculous claims that we have of Jesus Christ in verse 18 of chapter 1 is that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has revealed Him. And the question is, do you believe what He's revealed? The counterfeit faith, the dead faith, that we see at the end of chapter 2 is a faith that sees miracles and says, this is incredible. That's not that hard. You guys ever seen the magician David Blaine? You know what I'm talking about? Goes out on the street. If you've never seen it, YouTube the guy. You will not figure out how he does what he does. He looks like he's levitating. He can do things that are just miraculous and it will leave you dumbfounded wondering how in the world did he do that? Well, I know this for sure. He's not really magic, but he looks like he's magic and he's pretty impressive to me. Well, anyone who comes to Jesus the same way I look at David Blaine on YouTube has a counterfeit faith. But anyone who comes to Jesus saying, Lord, I believe not only what you've revealed about God the Father, but what You've revealed about me. And I know that outside of You, I am undone. That because of my sin, I have been separated from the Father. And it's only through the atoning work that You have accomplished on the cross that I can have peace with God. And so I'm coming to You in faith that You will do and be what you said you would do and be. And I'm coming to you to follow you and to be your disciple. It's one thing to say, wow. It's another thing to say, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would teach us that you would take this text and not bless us not to use it in a way that is not intended. Um, I pray that we would not become so introspective that we begin to dissect every little thought that we've ever had. I pray that this text would not primarily drive us inward, but that it would drive us outward to you, to who you are, to what you've claimed about yourself. And Lord, I pray that You would bless us and bless our faith to be strengthened in You. To be strengthened in who You are and what You've done. I pray that You would help us to cut through the many distractions, the many um, uh, really side roads, and that with our own hearts and in our own lives, that we would come to You as our Savior and as our Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.